Hello, and welcome to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where authors from around the world share how they hope to inspire fellow writers and readers to believe in themselves and others every Tuesday at 1 p.m. on KVSH 101.9 FM and every day at marchtwisdale.com as a podcast. I'm your host, March Twisdale, and I thank you for joining us today. All right. So, Julie, we are here. We are in the interview. How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you for having me. And you are in Texas? I am. I'm in North Texas in the DFW area. Wow. Weather must be super different between us right now. We are in the height of tornado season right now, which is why I like to write romantic comedies. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little more (laughs) lighthearted. So is that a rom-com? I I think so. Because I hear (laughs) rom-com being thrown around and I'm, I I feels like, um, I've been trying to really pin down that genre. And then you just mentioned romantic comedy. I was like, well, that's what I assume people meant by rom-com. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Okay. It is. Yeah, that's, that's what rom-com means, is a romantic comedy. Okay, okay, got it. Ironically, <laughs> even though your books have a beautiful sense of of humor to them, they don't strike me as like comedy first. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's interesting because it's like uh, there's some books where it's like it just feels like someone's making jokes constantly. But your characters, I really take them seriously. I feel like they are these full, authentic people who I could have as a, a friend next door. Or I mean, I, I really, really love how complete you've managed to pull off these characters, especially characters in the same city over a three-book series. You get to add to them each time. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, I'm glad, yeah. Um, you know, I think that there's nothing more uh, hilarious than the, the state of human beings at times. Uh-huh. So I think that tapping into those really authentic things can be can be a little tragic, um, a little a little funny, and you know a little revealing. So mm-hmm. I, I like to I like to think of my sweet spot as sort of like a um, really like very realistic romantic comedy, I guess. <laughs> well, and relatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for for me growing up, I moved a ton. I think. By the time I was 18, I'd lived in 26 different houses. And mm-hmm. I was always the new kid at school. I moved in the middle of the school year more times than I want to count. And it was the books, you know, that I took with me. My most treasured possession from one house to the next would be the books that I could turn to when I came home from a lousy day at school or, you know, when I thought you know, some kids are going to like me and suddenly, literally, I have I have known so many mean girl cliques who were just looking around for who it is that they can go ahead and scapegoat in the classroom or whatever. And usually it was me. And I would just go home. I could just sit down and, and read my book for the ninth time or whatever and spend time with that character and just feel, you know, safe. And, and so I imagine... You have moved into you've you've brought in characters that seem to get maybe missed or ignored in um, a lot of books, and I hope that it's having a really positive, affirming effect. I hope so too. I think that um, seeing you know in children's literature, we talk a lot about um, mirrors and windows, and mm-hmm. it's really it's a really powerful thing to read a book and for it to be a window into someone else's life. 
and for you to get the opportunity to see how someone else lives and for um, a different type of person to be really humanized to you through a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a really, really powerful thing for a book to be a mirror for you and for you to see that your life is a story that's worth telling and that you are capable and can have and do all the things that like the aspirational uh, romantic lead can have or the lead of an adventure novel or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that we, we talk about and we're very aware of um, in our industry. So it's definitely, for me, it's definitely something that's by design. Yeah. And and you referenced yourself, you said children's literature. And I'm noticing that a lot of people who do specialize in children's lit um, go all the way up through YA. So mm-hmm. do you see yourself as a YA writer or children's lit or like what are your goals because you also you have the books you've written but you have the books you're going to write where are you planning to go um i i i really feel like i would like some of the stories that i write to be limitless i would like to have sort of a hand in every pot um this is uh unannounced yet so i can't really say much more about it but (laughs) i'm working on a picture book right now um and i'm also I've got books for the middle grade age, so like, you know, upper elementary school and middle school. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the huge chunk of my books that I've published thus far are for young adults, so for teens and for, you know, kids right out of high school. Um, but I'll be honest and say that most of my adults or most of my readership is adult, um, regardless of the, the age that I'm writing for. Um, and I think it's because we all really love revisiting that coming of age time in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also have an adult book coming out later this year and I have plans to write more adult books. Um, So I, I would love for, I would love for one day when I'm an old lady Mm -hmm. for there to be someone out there who sort of grew up with my books and who sort of went from reading me at a very young age to, you know, through adulthood. Um, That's like, you know, the big, the big long-term lifelong goal um, is that I was able to sort of like walk with someone um, as an author that they, you know, enjoyed and found comfort in. Um, But for right now, I'm just trying to, you know, keep my eyes on my current deadlines. (laughs) Yeah, no, of course. Absolutely. That's so great. That's so awesome. I mean, it, that's, thank you. I I think um, there's this, this fog, you know, this veil that lies between um, readers and writers in a way where um, it's sort of like with even, you know, actors where you're like, oh, well, I've seen how they are in the movies, but I know nothing about their real life. And a lot of times it's really nice to actually hear the what the thoughts are that are going on on the other side of that veil. And every writer, when I ask them that question, they have a different answer. So it's always interesting. It's now, I'm never expecting a pat answer. So I love that. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to make sure people know that uh, it's so interesting. When I grew up, um, very few books have been turned into movies. And so if you're interested in a book, you read the book. And now it's even like Harry Potter. I think initially you had a lot of people, children, whatever, who were reading the books but then you have this thing that happened where all these books started getting turned very quickly into movies, and now a lot of people just hear about the book and then watch the movie. Have you noticed right. that there's that growing trend of people who are like, oh, yeah, well, I saw that. I saw the movie. 
I didn't read the book. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. I I uh, am trying and failing and trying and slightly succeeding at uh, you know playing around on TikTok and making little videos about you know my books or my experience as a writer things like that and one of the videos I made went I hesitate to call it viral but it got like a couple hundred thousand views or something like that nice and it was about my books and you know how they're related to this movie and I'm always surprised by how many people are like I had no idea it was a book I have to go out and read all of these right now I had no idea these are based off a book I'm so I'm so excited there's more story for me to discover Mm -hmm. um and so you know it's funny because when you're when you're watching the movie uh, for me, Dumplin', it's right there. It says right there in the opening credits, like based on the novels uh, by Julie Murphy. Right. And so it's just, it's it's a thing that our brains very easily skip over. Um, but then at the same time, the movie really helped widen my readership. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will always just be people who are just, you know, viewers and not readers. And that's fine. There's no... There's no judgment in that. Um, no, to, and then there's audiobooks. However books, you... Right? People yeah, who are like, however, I just want to listen. Yeah, and listening to audiobooks is reading. I, I, you know, I'm a former librarian, and I firmly believe that listening to audiobooks is definitely reading. Um, so, I don't know. I think that I think that some authors probably feel a little bit uh, cranky about it, <laughs> about, um, you know, their books sort of being, like, skipped over, but... I think that the readers who are going to genuinely want to read a book will discover it. Um, and there was, thankfully, there was a lot of good PR around the time that the movie released, linking me to the project. And um, I also think it really has to do with the people who you're working with and, uh, uh, you know, your production team and how much they're keeping you involved and how much they want to make you part of the process of promoting the movie. Right. That was exactly where I was going with that is I wanted to know what, like I have a sense that authors are more or less involved. Like um, I think Leigh Bardugo right now was super involved in um, the shadow and bone series going through Netflix. But I have another friend who's this amazing published author with just, we're talking dozens of books. And she, I was like, oh, I'm noticing some of your books are showing up as audiobooks now. You're making the transition over. And she's like, no, the publisher decided to do it. I had no voice in the decision, no choice about who would portray the characters or anything. So I was totally curious to know how engaged you were in the making of Dumplin'. Well, you know, audiobooks and movies are a vastly different process. Mm-hmm. Um, so for your friend that's seeing audiobooks coming up, that's a that's an arm of publishing. So when your first when your book is first bought by your publisher, the publisher has the option of also buying the audio rights. And right. if your friend doesn't have any say in it, it could be because the publisher bought the audio rights and is now starting to license that or starting oh, to produce totally. those audiobooks. Yeah. So that's it's it's a it's a possible thing. It's a good thing. But it, it is nice to be involved in those decisions as far as, like, narrators and things like that. Um, and it's just really a case-by-case process. But as far as, like, um, I'm actually good friends with Lee uh, Bardugo. Mm-hmm. And her, uh, when she first started talking to Netflix, she actually reached out to me and asked me what my experience was, re- was like. And um, I think the really good thing about Netflix is they're really good at identifying assets. Mm-hmm. And so they're really good at looking at 
something like Dumplin' or something like Shadow and Bone and seeing that there is an established fan base or even Jenny Han's recent series. Uh, um, oh, the cute like the one about I love you, letters. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the yeah, yeah. I've loved before. Yeah. Um, Jenny's another friend of mine. And um, so they're really, Netflix and a lot of these streaming services are really good about identifying authors who are assets to the production of the movie and authors mm-hmm. who have a relationship with their fan base and their readership. Um, and so it was really, I was really lucky to be working with people that were able to identify that and make me part of the process. Nice. And did you have like, um, I don't know, was there anything that surprised you about the process or something you want to share about what, what it, I mean, both for my writer listeners who might be imagining, you know, and hoping one day to be in those shoes. And also for us, the viewers, you know, once again, there's that big foggy, you know, veil. We don't really know what's going on back there. Anything you want to share? Yeah. Um, Well, as far as the movie goes, um, the movie was actually, the film rights were actually originally purchased by Disney um, for Mm -hmm. like a big theatrical release type movie. And their priorities at Disney were starting to shift. They were starting to make, um, you know, properties based off of, uh, or they were starting to make, uh, you know, movies and books and things like that based off of properties they already owned. So, like, all of their iconic princess stories and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when my, when my contract with them expired, they had already hired a screenwriter and a bunch of producers and when that happened, um, I thought that that was it. I thought that our that our time and our chance, you know, with making Dumplin' into a movie was done. Um, but it turned out that everyone who was hired for the project was really passionate about staying with the project. Uh-huh. And so it was those people that Disney originally hired that helped me make the movie and helped us get Jennifer Aniston and Dolly Parton and all those people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really a project that had many opportunities to fail. And it was uh-huh. sort of, um, I think it's really easy to see a movie and just assume that like, wow, it's this like straight shot pipeline. Yeah. Like, someone saw this book and just saw, and was amazed by it and wanted to make a movie about it. And then it was done and Netflix released it. And really we made the movie independently. We, um, you know, we were cutting a lot of corners trying to do this as cheaply and efficiently as we could, but still make a good movie. And eventually, after, you know, after we were done and we shopped it around, it was Netflix who bought the movie. Um, but there's just, it's really easy to just see the big flashy thing and think that that's it. But really, it was like years of struggling to make wow. it happen. So Netflix didn't yeah. actually, like, take it from baby to you know, launch, they actually came at you. Right. You guys did that yourself, like a collaborative group of people who yeah. are just passionate about the project. Yeah. Um, That's a beautiful success that, story. It is really fantastic. And, you know, I'll always have such a soft spot for the people who I worked with um, through that process because they truly believed in this. I mean, one of the reasons that this movie was made was because, Jennifer Aniston was really behind it and really mm-hmm. um, believed in it. And so that's that's an amazing, incredible thing. And so it was really a passion project for, you know, everyone behind the scenes and her. And so it was it was really amazing. I think that um, I think that that kind of thing actually happens all the time in publishing in general, even when it doesn't mm-hmm. come to movies. You're always finding that um, 
you know, the the big books that you think are like super mega hits mm-hmm. really were just, you know, based like they're just sort of like built on like a graveyard of failures. Um, right. It's like a garage. Something happened. It was yeah. like a garage band. I mean, we all get that, you know, the teenagers who are banging around in their garage for like, you know, seven years driving the neighbors crazy and then suddenly poof, they become famous. You know, I mean, it's like we've all sort of heard that right. story. But I think when it comes to movies, we assume it has to be big budget to begin with. You've got all this tech, you know, and yet really it's just whether we go to the moon or Mars or whatever it is that we do, it's just human intention. Right. Manifest. Yeah. I mean, we had we had enough money to make that movie in 30 days and that's what we had to do. And they oh did it. <laughs> like it, miraculously, they did it. So. Mm-hmm. I always I I've done theater, so I have a sense of what it's what it's like, you know, in the background. I know what the green room's like, you know, and 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 so that was really beautiful for me to actually spend a number of years with my kids doing theater and being like, oh, wow. Honestly, the experience of being in a play is like a thousand times more than the experience of sitting there with your ticket in your hand and watching it you know and it's like i'm like Mm -hmm. oh all the action was what happened in the back and in the you know so yeah oh my gosh it's great especially costuming i have i have mad respect mad respect for the people who figure out costuming because i just wear sweats all the time i am a non-costume brain woman so right (laughs) so cool all righty well let's see here um Thank you for sharing those details. I imagine you yeah. were able to actually connect with Jennifer a few times. Yes, yeah. I, um, you know, we we met for the first time on the set, and um, there was sort of like before we had a chance to meet, there was sort of like this like passing notes back and forth, sort of like through the production team of like, mm-hmm. we're so excited to work with you. I'm so excited to meet you. I can't wait for this to happen. Yeah. Um, but I felt like none of us really knew if it was definitely going to happen until the first day we started filming. Right. Uh, we kind of were all waiting for something to fall through. Um, and so when I, I, I spent some time on set and I got to visit with her and then, you know, of course, getting to see her through like, you know, all the different uh, publicity things that we did. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's really cool. She's, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you anything bad about her if I knew anything bad about her, but right. I can tell you that I have seen her work and I've seen, um, how she can really, uh, kind of lead a cast like that, a really young cast like that through mm-hmm. a really galvanizing thing, making a movie in 30 days. And she's really fantastic. She deserves all the good things that come to her. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Okay, cool. So um, I, let's see. I want to uh, dive a little bit sideways into um, a question about the, the genre contemporary fiction, um, mostly because I, I really like the opportunity during this show for um, my audience to just, you know, I've learned so much specifically over the past, I would say the past year you know, the pandemic for me, um, well, eliminated my job, which cleared up space. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. of course, I couldn't go looking for a job because everyone was on literal lockdown. So, you know, you don't go looking mm-hmm. for a job when there's no jobs happening. So I was like, all righty, then I'm going to dive into my garden, which ironically, the previous fall of 2019, we'd actually sort of like had it 
plowed for the first time in a long time and thrown in a bunch of cover crop and I was going to let it go fallow for a couple of years and just rest. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. I'm glad I invested that money last year because you're going to actually be working garden this year. And, you know, so I like injured. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so everyone out there who's over the age of 40, you you know, when you were younger, you'd go out in the garden and you'd start gardening and you'd feel a little sore because you were a little sore and you'd feel better after a few days. Well, when we get older, our ligaments and tendons lose some of their blood flow and their elasticity. (laughs) And when you start hurting, actually like stop and pay attention because I didn't. And I ended up injuring in particular this one tendon connection between my bicep and my shoulder that still to this day, uh, 11, 12 months later, is still actually causing me some problems, although it's almost healed. So I basically beat myself up doing the gardening thing. And then after that, I just dove into my writing, which I'd always been distracted by with kids and all these other things, my jobs or whatever. And I was like, well, gosh, pandemic has shut down like almost everything and my kids are finally adulted and I was like oh my goodness I get to really put time into this so I'm learning so much stuff right now that I haven't known before and it's thrilling so I wanted to talk a little bit about the genre of contemporary fiction and have you just chat a little bit about that because um I'm more of a speculative fiction reader with like a background in sci-fi fantasy and I tend towards supernatural and dystopian elements. And so your books, which I believe you said yesterday when we were chatting are in the contemporary genre, it was like a genre stretching for me. And I'm so thrilled I got stretched. And I, I was hoping you could maybe explain a little bit about contemporary genre. Maybe what are some of the goals of writers who are writing contemporary fiction? What's What's the purpose behind it? And just go there a little bit. Yeah, I think that, um, so I do mostly write contemporary. I do have um, two books, um, well, one of them will be out later this year, that are speculative that I've done in conjunction with a comic book company. Um, Mm. They have a plus-size superhero, and they asked me if I would be willing on doing uh, sort of like coming-of-age novelizations about her. Um, And that's been really fun to work on, but like you said, it's really been stretching my brain muscles. Like it's something totally new for me. Um, I, I think the funny thing is that as a reader, I really gravitate towards um, speculative fiction. I've always, I've always loved um, anything with like a little bit of magic to it. Um, mm-hmm. Fairy books specifically, I've always loved. Um, but as a writer, I feel really at home in contemporary fiction. Um, and I think that you know, uh, for contemporary, for authors who are writing contemporary, there's there's all kinds of different um, motivations there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of us are, were sort of jaded by the classics growing up, um, as I'm sure that you will find with most readers right now. Um, so there's this kind of excitement in contemporary that like we could be writing modern day classics. Like we're, we're writing these little time capsules that are reflections of the exact moment that we're writing them through. Um, right. and that's a really exciting thing, I think. Um, oh, I love that. Because, I, yes, I totally. I mean, Pride and Prejudice probably is a great example. And everyone has a sense yeah. of she was writing about what was really, that was, she was writing contemporary fiction when she produced those books. 
That's Would, exactly the thing is to me, the oh. classics that we value were just contemporary fiction at their time. That's just what they were. Um, so I think that that's really, there's so many fantastic authors who I love who are writing about very specific, important topics right now, like mm-hmm. police brutality and things like that. And their books are truly instant classics because they are such an incredible reflection of the current thing that we're living through. Um, so I, I don't know that I would think of my own books in that way. Um, but I, I do think that that's something really special about contemporary fiction that we don't think about often, especially because, um, in the bubble of publishing, usually the books that get the most money are like the big fantasy books. And so at times, um, those, a lot of contemporary books are sort of just like, just kind of written off as like a one-off story that will no longer be relevant once the time for its relevance has passed. Really? Oh my goodness, um, that's interesting. Yeah, but it, it's that's that's a that's a big swapping statement, but that's not always the case necessarily. Yeah, yeah, there's, no, but I but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So it's it's a, it's a it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting part of publishing to exist in and it's one I really love but there's always like most contemporary books will never bring in the type of attention when they're going out on submission in the publication world as like a giant fantasy book would Um, but sometimes they really resonate with the readers and they really explode in exciting and unexpected ways like my friend Angie's book The Hate You Give right um or, you know, my friend Nick's book, Dear Martin, or uh, my friend Becky's book, uh, which was turned into a movie called Love, Simon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's sort of like it's it's a little it's a little exciting, but it's also um, it can be a little frustrating at times to see the way that people value stories. Um, but, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because um, for me, I think. What's been so really um, eye-opening for me about reading your books is, and and you, I actually read um, The Hate You Give. I, um, I, I can't remember if I, I, I can't remember if I read it first, because I have this thing where when I can tell that a book has been turned into a movie, usually I go grab the book and read it first, and then I watch the movie, like I put off the right. movie. Um Every once in a while, no, almost always I do that. I'm trying to, oh, I know, um, the Joy Luck Club, because it was a movie mm-hmm. and I went to see that and it literally was my favorite movie for, I think, about 20 years and it's still in my top five. It was just yeah. shattering. And and then later, you know, Amy Tan's book, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go read the book. But um, one thing that's been great and eye-opening for me with reading your books is that I realized, because like The Hate You Give, for examples, and, and it really intense topic being covered. And what I realized was that I had a tendency to sort of avoid contemporary novels because I think I, if I'm wanting to read a book because I want to have a release from maybe the everyday stresses of real life and I want a version of an escape, but I want it to also make me think about things. You know, I want, I want, I want to come out of it with some cool ideas, but I want it to be mostly a relaxing escape. I always felt mm-hmm. like contemporary novels were maybe going to be too intense for me. Like I, I might right. 
they would be angsty or they would make me feel more um, frustrated, disappointed, worried about the state of society. And and your mm-hmm. books totally didn't do that to me, but they were mind-blowing at the same time. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that, um, you know, I, I say that about, you know, contemporary versus speculative, contemporary versus fantasy. But then at the same time, there's something that fantasy writers have to contend with and that they're not taken seriously all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if fantasy books and speculative fiction are very rarely seen as like the top award winners or considered literary or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I think on both ends of that spectrum, uh, there's a lot to contend with. And um I, I definitely can see what you mean about, like, the fear of uh, books like that being too intense or not escapism enough. But I also think that there's, especially in uh, teen and YA lit, there's something really wonderful about getting the opportunity to learn about something like police brutality or having sex for the first time or just, like, any situation that might be scary or different or new to you, Mm -hmm. getting the opportunity for a teen or a a kid to learn about that experience for the first time in a book and not in real life Mm -hmm. gives them that chance to sort of explore it mentally and prepare themselves for what that might be like or how they might discuss that topic or, um, you know, how how they might be able to frame that situation in their own life. Yes. Um, Well, what was that? um, 13. Oh. Come on, come on. You know, uh, the lead actress, I think, was from Australia. But it's it's like um, the book was actually over a 24-hour period of time. But it's a girl who kills herself. And um, oh, 13, uh, reasons 13 Reasons Why. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, deeply, deeply intense. There was a huge reaction to that. Actually, on my island, the schools actually came out with, like, emails all to the parents. And there was all this... Um, that was what was amazing to me was there was all this real world reaction, pushback, confusion. It was like, holy Toledo. I just sort of stood back and watched it all happen and, and thought, ah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, intense. That was really, really intense to see unfold. Yeah. <clears throat> A good example though, of how, of how um, a fictional story can have such in- incredible relevancy. I want to talk a little bit about Pumpkin, which yeah. hasn't come out yet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes out on May 25th. Oh, my goodness gracious, right around the corner. Are you, like, super excited? I am super excited. This will be my, oh, gosh, let me see. How many books is this now? This will be my one, two, three, four, five, six seventh book and then I'll be releasing my eighth and ninth later this year too it's a very it's a really hectic year um so I'm excited but I also um I've kind of come to this realization that the most exciting part of writing a book isn't releasing it for me the most exciting part of writing a book for me is writing the book mm-hmm. um I when my very first book came out I went to the bookstore and I expected it to feel like magical and amazing and getting to see my book on the shelves and Mm -hmm. it was amazing but it wasn't like this big light bulb moment I thought I was going to have I had it built up in my head for so long and (laughs) I kind of just slowly realized oh there's my dog I slowly realized that 
the exciting part of writing a book for me was getting to actually do that as a living and write a book. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. Oh my goodness. So it, it's certainly, you know, it's funny for me, like you have vacations and, and when I would have a vacation planned with like, you know, the whole family, I had to plan it way in advance because, you know, we've got animals in the garden and so we have whatever, it just takes a while. So I'd be like, oh, for four months, I know that we're going to go see family or we're going to go do this or that. And I would just be so happy knowing that that was coming. And then like we would get on the plane. This happens every time we're on the plane or whatever, we're hitting the car and suddenly I go, oh, and my husband's like, what? And I'm like, we're seven days away from this being over. (laughs) I'm like, I just had four months of joy looking forward to it. And now, you know, I've only got six and a half days of it left and then it'll be behind me. So it's so now, funny. Here, I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say that you were the kind of person that got so excited planning for something, but then as soon as it had to happen, you felt like this sense of dread because that's how I feel. Oh. I always get so excited to plan something, and then like I'll plan a whole party, and then when it's time to go to the party, I don't want to go to the party. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, not well. It's not the dread. It's just, just it's bittersweet. I'm like, oh, this is so bittersweet because it's now the end is is ha- is beginning to uh, come. I call me crazy. I feel like birthdays are bittersweet too. You know, I'm never going to have my beautiful four-year-old son ever again. He's gone forever, but my get my five-year-old son, you know, so I'm just my brain. Maybe it's weird. Whatever. No, no, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not super well educated about um, the various um, individual movements for equality that are going on all over the world, not just in our country, but all over the world, as well as our culture. Um, I'm aware of many of them without actually having done really a deep dive into any one specific area. And so Mm -hmm. I want to ask you to just forgive me if I ask a question that's got an obvious answer or if I say something wrong. But one thing that came up for me when I was specifically starting to look through pumpkin a little bit was um, I'm curious if there has been a sort of organic collaboration that's occurred between the queer community and um, body image communities that the two are sort of aligning in this effort to change the absolutely unacceptable way in which society has this horrible habit of judging people based upon their physique or other aspects of, of their body. Do you know if there's been a collaboration, accidental or what? Yeah, I think that the queer community and the body positive or fat positive communities um, have always been closely aligned. Um, uh, it's just, uh, I think that always been a place that um, fat people felt safe and welcome in. Um, that said, there is a lot of fat shaming within the queer community itself, especially among, um, like, uh, you know, cisgendered men in the queer community. Um but, I mean, you can go as far back as, like, things like hairspray and see that, like, um, like fat women and gay men have constantly found common ground together mm-hmm. and not only found common ground, but, like, a place where creative creativity flourished. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think there was ever any, like, one meeting among, like, the fats and the gays where we were like, let's get together and make something and do something. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But I think that, like, there's, like, sort of, like, an alignment of beliefs and thoughts and, you know, so many fat people are queer that it just, 
I don't, not that there's like some higher percentage of fat people are queer or something mm-hmm. like that. But so many people who would feel, I think, who would have a tendency to want to like <clears throat> feel liberated from the shame that society uh, like put on them because what their body might look like also find that they might be queer because it's just sort of like a liberal leaning thing in general. Okay. And so just to follow that a little bit further, um, you know, so many of us are becoming increasingly aware of, and this is a long list of letters, uh, LGBTQIA, and there may be more coming down the pipeline. But um, many of us are only peripherally aware of um, the life issues that people experience when they are not, as you mentioned earlier, um, cisgendered. And I was wondering if you, and, and also you mentioned in a in a lovely letter you have at the beginning of your ARC copy where you were talking to the reader, um, you referred to yourself as queer, and this is the introduction to Pumpkin. I'm wondering if before we talk about Pumpkin a little bit, if you could help people understand and grasp sort of what those concepts mean. Well, it's like a huge question. Uh, I think you can probably handle yeah. that, though. I'm just throwing a giant, giant question your way. But I just want people to be grounded so that they're sort of with us and they're keeping up. Yeah, so uh, first, cisgendered uh, means that a person's uh, gender identity corresponds with their birth sex. So it means that I was, uh, you know, I was pronounced female at birth and the, and, you know, that birth sex also corresponds with my current gender identity, which is female or she, her. Um, so that's a quick definition of cisgendered. Mm-hmm. Um, as for me personally, I am a, uh, bisexual or pansexual, uh, woman who, uh, is married to uh, a straight guy. Um, so that's, that's how I personally identify as queer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, What's great about all the terminology in these younger generations is they're really good at cataloging all of this information and really um, making it like readily available. So I think that it's the kind of thing where if you ever have a question, you can just ask. You know, mm-hmm. there's it's it's better to to ask than to have like a foot and mouth moment. You know, so even if it's like something where you meet someone for the first time and you can't tell what their gender expression might be. It's always okay to just say, do you have specific pronouns you prefer? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's a great thing to say regardless of what kind of gender you might perceive them to be. Um, so, yeah, I don't yeah, know if that it's... fully answers the question. But... No, that was that was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, we're the, we don't have the five days or five weeks necessary to go full depth. But um, yeah. <laughs> we only have another half an hour. But um, yet, you know, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of times people as they, it can happen at any age, but in particular also as you get to a certain age, which I didn't really get this until I actually got to this age. So, you know, I'm 48 and I'm starting to go, oh, I get things that people in their 40s and 50s used to say that I didn't understand. One thing I've noticed is there can be a bit of a hesitancy or a a a fear that you're not going to be able to learn new information as readily or keep up. And I think that for some people, 
they just the fear that you're going to try to understand and fail is enough to cause you to not actually seek out more information. And then people just either dodge an area that they're not familiar with or they take whatever their first impression is, which is probably going to be a stereotype, and just sort of like decide to go with that. And so interesting for all the writers out there um, and readers, this will be interesting little backstory. I have been avoiding learning the difference between active and passive writing for over 10 years. People would mention to me in different writing groups and stuff, oh, well, you know, well, that's passive. And I would, and I was so worried. I'm not a grammar person who loves grammar and things. And I was like, I'm not going to understand it. It's going to be confusing. It'll be really hard. And I've just dodged it. And finally, I think I got a line edit done on the first 10,000 words of my current work in progress. And I just looked up the difference between active and passive. And like, it was 12 minutes later. And I'm like, Oh, I totally get that. And I was like, I've spent 10 years avoiding something that took 12 minutes to understand. So yeah, there's so much information out there readily available. Just go on Google and start exploring and, and, you know, get familiar. Yeah. And if it makes you feel any better, I do it all the time. I really, I've always hated the idea of even like a writing class or anything that prescriptively tells me how to write or what makes good writing or even like plot beat sheets, things like that. Like right. I just don't like them. I just like to march to the beat of my own drum. If I'm doing it wrong, I don't want to know because <laughs> if I'm doing it wrong, I might still feel right. <laughs> um, and I think that that's actually... That's actually one of my biggest pieces of writing advice that, you know, I won't say this curse word on the air because I don't mm-hmm. know if I can, but that um, it's just kind of all bullcrap writing advices. Like, it's just, it doesn't matter how you get to a place as long as you get there. Mm-hmm. So however your writing process needs to look is how it should look. Um, yeah, it's like, um, so it's like, I think it's fine yeah. that you took that long to find out. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I was laughing at myself, but I also felt <laughs> so happy and relieved that it wasn't this thing that was going to take me months to try to understand. I was like, oh, and the, it was so cool. The thing I found online even had like, okay, well, here's some sentences that are all written in passive voice. So now practice shifting them to active. And I was like, Boom, 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 boom. I was like, ah, if you should see me, I was jumping up and down in my office squealing. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so yes. So, all right. Well, let's dive back into Pumpkin a little bit here because Pumpkin is so brilliant in that your first um, two books in this specific trilogy, um, I, I guess it's fair to say they were heavy on female characters. Mm-hmm. Yes, no. And this one's about yeah. Waylon. And as a mother of sons with brilliant joy in my heart about the um advancements we're seeing in the civil rights movement right now, the current civil rights movement, the women's, you know, um advancement. I'm really really happy about that. And as a mother of sons, I can see that the harm that's caused to males by our society is not often recognized or spoken about or being tackled. And I think that it was so great that, that Waylon's here now. So can you talk a little bit, you do a brilliant job of discussing what it is that's going on, especially when it comes to fat shaming for men compared to fat shaming for women and stuff. If you just want to dive into that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, you know, men aren't going anywhere, you know what I mean? Um, 
So I think that it's really important for us to be really thoughtful about how we um, raise our boys and how we are broaching all these current topics that um, men seem to be at the center of and at the core of, especially white men. Um, so I, that's that's really important to me. But also, um, I I wrote this book in a way because I was inspired by my spouse, as I am often. And um, he is a bigger guy. He's a fat guy. And he has always... He's always been, like, the Mr. Fix-It. He's always been kind of, like, the protector, like, burly, bearded guy. Um, in high school, he was in wrestling. He did football. He did all those primarily masculine things that you mm-hmm. would um, suspect someone like him might do. And I noticed early on when I was in high school that fat boys did not get treated the same way as fat girls. Um, if fat boys could make themselves useful, if they could be masculine, if they could be protectors, um, then they, then their fat or their, their fatness was sort of seen as like a, like a beneficial thing. Like it just made them bigger. It just made them, um, like more of that type of personality. Like the linebacker, I think example you gave yesterday. I mean, literally you can't even, I don't think you can even be a linebacker unless you're like packing on a lot of extra weight because you're like this boundary or this wall they have to run into right yeah right, exactly so it's it's really about serving a purpose mm-hmm. and while it's it, it may sound like they're just you know they're they're having like this privilege of being you know a guy who is fat yes there is privilege to that but also they are they're being shortchanged just as much as uh you know a lot of other people are because they're being forced to use this sort of like role of hyper masculinity is like a social currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so my husband was always forgiven for being fat because of all of the masculine things that he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I hid behind growing up was humor. If I could be the funniest person in a room, you might forgive me for being fat. Mm-hmm. Um, but Waylon was really born out of this thought of like, what happens when these big burly guys don't um, like, bow down to like this idea of masculinity what happens when they don't conform to that mold um and they're something else entirely Mm -hmm. and that's where waylon came from is um this unwillingness to to you know fit into that mold right or to to um dodge society's judgment by complying with society's expectations right right And not only that unwillingness to, but like for a lot of like these, for a lot of queer people, it's it's life or death getting to be them true selves. Um, And so I'm sure that a a boy like Waylon would do a football thing. He he would do the, like the, you know, dad bonding, Mr. Fix-It things if, if he could, if, if it didn't make him feel like he was like dying inside. Mm -hmm. Um, but it really is that dire for for some of us, right? And and so that's so. Do you want to not give spoilers? But um, uh, hints and fun thoughts about pumpkin for the people who are yeah. sitting around waiting for it to actually launch and be available. Right. So um, 
Dumplin' Puddin' and Pumpkin are the three books in the, uh, I guess you could call them the Clover City Trilogy or the Dumplin' Trilogy. And um, the the third in every book focuses on a different character, all set in the same small town. And so Pumpkin is about uh, a boy named Waylon Brewer who um, is a huge fan of a very popular drag show on TV and sort of in this night where he is rejected on multiple levels from um, a sort of like friends with benefits person and also from his twin sister and also just very disappointed with how his favorite show has played out. Um, he decides to uh, film a audition tape for this drag show and the audition tape is really raw and a little bit crazy Um <laughs> And something that he probably doesn't actually want to get out, but of course it finds its way out into the world and is accidentally leaked to the whole school. And in response to that, he's he's nominated for prom queen as a joke. And uh, rather than sort of uh, reject that, he decides to run with it Mm -hmm. and actually run for prom queen. So um, that was really fun to write, writing in um, lots of little uh, drag queen moments. I'm a huge fan of drag. I have been for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think since like the first time I saw The Little Mermaid as a child and found that the only character I cared about was Ursula. Um, <laughs> that's one of my first obsessions with drag start, I'm sure. Uh, so, and she gets yeah. so it's, it's what a raw deal. I'm always like, there's where's the backstory to Ursula? I mean, like, she's not just evil for the sake of evil. You know, I kept waiting, you know, to find out that she'd been treated badly or, or, you know, and, and nope, Disney just did, yeah. I know. I've got, I've got hopes. I've got hopes. They're supposedly making an Ursula movie, so I've got my fingers crossed. Well, um, and what was it, um, uh, Angelina Jolie did that with Maleficent. Mm-hmm. Gave yeah. us the backstory to what was had otherwise been, of course, you know, in, if you're a female with power, therefore you're the bad, bad guy. Right. Bad guy. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Old, old stories being re-envisioned and recreated. I really love it. I love yeah. to see it. <laughs> so we only have like just a couple more minutes left. And, um, you know, you, primarily in addition to the fact that you're touching upon fabulously important and relevant issues. You are essentially creating stories that capture, hold reader attention, pull us to the seat of our pants, and have characters that we care about, stakes that keep us flipping the pages. I mean, you are writing amazing stories. And from the perspective of craft, and for all my writing listeners that are out there, do you have any favorite books on writing, which ironically you mentioned earlier, you're sort of like almost anti that, but are there tips? Are there habits that you've personally cultivated? You know, for the person who says, tell me how you did it, what would you offer right. up to them as a gym? Um, so I do have, a, for as much as I don't like writing advice, I do have a little bit of advice that I like to share with others. Um, the first thing that I, that I noticed in my writing career um, is that the moment I decided that I wanted this to be my life, the moment I decided that I wanted someone to take me seriously, mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to start treating writing like a job, even if someone wasn't paying me for it yet. Mm-hmm. So whatever amount of time I could dedicate to writing, I promised myself that I would dedicate that amount of time to writing. 
So even if it was 30 minutes a week or 30 minutes a day, I treated it like I was clocking in and out for a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I promised myself that time. So I found that once I started investing in myself that way, um, that's when things really started to shift. And that's when I started to really value my time a little bit more. Um, and it is really true what they say, like a writer writes. So mm-hmm. I think that when I was first thinking about writing, I spent so much time just thinking and thinking and thinking. And yes, there is so much we do before we sit down in a chair and actually write. Mm-hmm. That's just completely mental. But it's also important to just sit in a chair and face the blank page and mess up, you know? Yeah, totally, um, totally. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's like, it's like 50% of my job is just failing over and over mm-hmm. again until something feels right. Um, and so I think that that's really important. And the other thing I really like to make writers aware of is the fact that you cannot compare yourself to a finished product. Um, it's, mm, and I, I still yeah. am in danger of doing this. I'm still constantly looking at books coming out and my favorite writers or just books that I'm like enamored by and feeling defeated by them and feeling like I'll never be that good. I can never mm-hmm. do anything like that. Um, and then I, it takes me a moment to realize like this book has been through rounds of rounds of edits with mm-hmm. an editor at a publishing house. And it was probably through rounds of rounds of edits before it got there. And I can't, you know, I can't compare my first try to someone else's published work. Um, So that's really, really important to understand is that the writers who you love and see on shelves have failed just as hugely as you might as well. (laughs) No, I, I, once again, that veil, that fog, you know, it's, it's, if people could see what, you know, Oklahoma looked like in the first week of them you know, preparing the production and staging it and everything compared to when you sit down, you know, three months later and watch the finished thing, you know, you'd be laughing. But no, the doors are locked. You don't get to come in and see it when it's all gritty and messy and not working yet. Yeah, I know. Right. right? I mean, oh, my goodness gracious. That's that's great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and my listeners today. It's been a brilliant interview. This was so much fun. I had a great time. Thank you. Voice of Ashan is your island connection to prose, poetry, and purpose, where I hope to offer weekly inspiration and enthusiasm by highlighting the committed and passionate work of writers around the world. I'm your host, Marge Twisdale, and I hope you enjoyed my interview with Julie Murphy, author of many books and the soon-to-be-released final book in the Dumplin' Trilogy, Pumpkin. You can learn more about Julie Murphy's work at I'm Julie Murphy. Dot com, and all episodes of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose are available as a podcast on my website, marchtwisdale.com.